There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, my sporting life on Talk Sport. Yeah, welcome to another edition of My Sporting Life here on TalkSport with me, Danny Kelly. And tonight I'm joined by one of the greats of British sports broadcasting, one of the greats of British broadcasting full stop. My guest is best known for his work in Formula One, commentating on over 350 Grand Prix over the course of a quarter of a century, with his distinctive voice and enthusiastic style becoming absolutely synonymous with the sport itself. He also commentated on over 200 Isle of Man TT and Manx Grand Prix events over 30 years, covered motocross, rallycross, powerboats, carts and touring cars, and was awarded the OBE in 1996 for his services both to motorsport and broadcasting. And prior to making his name as a commentator, he spent five years in the British Army, rising to the rank of captain and playing his part in the fight against Nazi Germany during the Second World War. He enjoyed a short-lived motorsport event career himself, winning a gold medal in the 1949 International Six-Day Trials, as well as spending over three decades working in the advertising industry alongside his famous broadcasting career. He was recently voted the greatest sports commentator of all time. On tonight's My Sporting Life, I am privileged and honoured to be joined by the motorsport commentator, and he won't mind me saying this, living legend, Murray Walker. Murray, welcome to my sporting life here on Talk Sport. Let's get down to business. Graham Murray Walker, OBE, born on the 10th of October 1923 in Birmingham, England, um, though latterly brought up in uh, North London. What was like, uh, life like growing up for you, uh, Murray? It was absolutely great, Danny. I mean, my father was uh, the youngest sergeant major in the British Army in World War II. He was a dispatch rider. That's That's where I get my love of motorsport from. I've often ask myself what my life would have been like if my father had been a plumber or an electrician. But in fact, he was a motorcycle rider and a successful racer as well. Mm, that's right. And and you tend either to love what your father does or loathe what your father does. Well, I, I adored my father. I adored my mother. They were wonderful people. Uh, and my father, as I say, was a racing motorcyclist. So I grew up in a motorsport atmosphere uh, because my dad would go away for the weekend to Austria, to Germany, to France, to Spain, to Holland, to Belgium, and he would come back with a big trophy, or, almost invariably. <laughs> I didn't think anything was very special about this, because that's what my father did. Uh, if my father had been a fireman and he'd put out fires, I don't suppose I would have thought that was very special. Um, but um, I, I, I have to put my hand on my heart and can't say that I've lived a deprived life. In fact, no, on the, on the contrary, you, as you're saying, you, you've had a, if not privileged, a very my, comfortable upbringing. My, my, my father was, was, was well off, and, and uh, uh, I, I lived in a very nice home in, in Enfield in Middlesex. Uh, I went to school at Highgate, uh, which was where my father had been to school. My, my grandmother had four sons, and she sent them all to different public schools. Don't ask me why she sent them to different schools, but she did. Uh, but I went to the same one that my father went to, uh, and I was actually beaten by a, father, by a, a teacher who beat my father. Uh, he was going to give me three strokes. for I put secotine on the board rubber or, uh-huh. or something like that. Some prank, yeah. Uh, and he said, uh, I'm going to give you three strokes for that, bend over, and I bent over in front of the form. And he said, uh, have you got anything you want to say in mitigation before I administer justice? <laughs> anyway, I said, I thought you'd be interested to know, sir, that you beat my father. Mm-hmm. 
And he said, oh, did I? I shall give you six for that. Yeah, the sins of the fathers. That's not fair, is and, it? And the moral of the, the moral of the story, Danny, is if in trouble, keep your mouth shut. Absolutely. <laughs> you also, I think your father, you say, went off travelling around the continent all the time uh, uh, racing. Did you ever accompany him? Yes, I did. Uh, what sort of place did you go? In school holidays, um, you name it, I've been there on the continent. I mean, that, that, in a world where, uh, where, we, where we now, people flip from you, one country to another, this was very unusual. You, you've put your finger on it because uh, before the war, hosting us out talking about World War Two, not World War One. Yeah. Uh, before the war, it was very strange, Danny, for people, anyone to have left this country. And people in France didn't speak English. People in Germany didn't speak English. People in Holland and Belgium and Spain didn't speak English. Uh, we hadn't got the sophisticated electronic communication systems that we've got now, telephones, television, all the rest of it. Uh, we had a telephone in, in our house, and we were very, very unusual. Uh, but I used to go abroad with my dad to Holland and Belgium and Germany when he was racing and when the holidays were on. And I was virtually the only person in my school who'd been out of the country. Incredible. It was very different then. I mean, people people put a back, backpack on now at 17 and go to Peru for the for The, uh, <laughs> the duration, yeah. yeah that's it. <laughs> not, not then. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to the, the Second World War because, uh, you, 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 as you say, um, you're from a, a, a well-to-do background and you've been to a, an excellent public school up there on, the, on Highgate Hill. Um, I went to the... Uh, to the Christian Brothers School, St. Heloicious, just down oh, right. below it. Oh, right. I, I know, yeah. I, so I know, I know how I get school very well. Um, and uh, uh, so you're in your late teens. Um, you, you have been around motorsport all your life. What did you, because obviously the, the outbreak of the Second World War changed everything, but what did you think you were going to do with your life, Murray? Um, I really don't know, Danny. There was, there was, uh, that, that question didn't crop up, you see, because we, I, I left school. Uh, and at that time, uh, the war the war was on, uh, and there was conscription. And when your number when your conscription number came up, you went to where they sent you. But if you volunteered for something and you were accepted, you went to what you had volunteered for. Now I wanted to be a Spitfire pilot, as we all did. Uh, because Spitfire pilots climbed up into the wide blue yonder and shot Messerschmitt's 109s down, uh, and they went home and they slept in their own bed or preferably slept in someone else's bed, which, yep. was, which was the vision you had about fighter pilots. And, and you're I probably wa- not wrong either. I, I wanted to be like that, um, but there was no question because of the, I, wear, I wear glasses. Uh, and the next best thing, as far as I was concerned, was, was tanks because um, the the war in North Africa was on then, and I visualised myself with a peak cap on the back of my head sitting on top of the tank turret with my feet dangling inside and a plume of sand behind while I charged across the desert to put, put the Germans down. Uh, and I volunteered, and I was accepted, and I went off to Bovington in Dorset, to do, which is where the home of tanks. That's yeah, where so the tanks tank, tank museum is still there, isn't it? It is. Well, look, Murray, you've, you've taken us to the point where you uh, join up, not as quite as a boy soldier, but as a teenage uh, recruit in, uh, and, and uh, hoping to be a tanker. Uh, let me ask you the obvious question. You, uh, I know you, you say you went to Bovington to learn. Um, what was it like learning to drive a tank? <laughs> uh, well, I... Uh, not di- I mean, I don't want to sound superior, but it, it's not difficult to drive a tank. Uh, if you can drive a, a normal vehicle, you operate the steering with levers and not with a steering wheel. But in those days, uh, before automatic transmission, uh, I was in Sherman tanks, which were the ones that the Americans produced in enormous quantities. And we, had to, we were the lead regiment, the Scots Greys, uh, and I was uh, in the reconnaissance troop, which was the lead of the lead <laughs> regiment. Uh, Tell and, me you weren't at the very front of the reconnaissance uh, troop uh, as well. well uh, and, and, and we got direct instructions from the 21st Army Group to get to Lubeck before the Russians. And we not only got to Lubeck before the Russians, and, and we were doing uh, 60, or, 60 or 70 miles a day, which in a tank was unbelievable. And I had an incredible experience at one time because we were advancing up a single single carriage road with with room for two vehicles side by side. The British Army were going up one side of the road, advancing, 
the German army was on the same piece of road, retreating as fast as they could because they wanted to get away from the Russians. And at one point we stopped, and I was sitting on the on the tank tower eating a tin of spam. I remember. <laughs> Uh, and I looked down, and there was a German Army Mercedes-Benz staff car with obviously four high dignitaries. Big wigs. Big, big wigs of the German Army in it. And I looked at them, and they looked at me, and I didn't say anything, and they didn't say anything. Uh, and the traffic broke, and, and we went on. And we got, to, we got to Wismar on the Baltic coast and linked up with the Russians. And the first Russians that we saw... Uh, was were on a captured Wehrmacht German Army BMW sidecar outfit with a Russian soldier sitting at the handlebars, a Russian officer sitting on the pillion behind him, and a Russian woman soldier in the sidecar alongside him. And we did all the shaking hands and thumbs up, and uh, and they said, uh, Lübeck, Lübeck. And we said, uh, we're in Lubeck, mate. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> it sounds exhilarating, but it also sounds very frightening. What do you, why do you look back on it now? Well, you, uh, you were young and it was exciting. Uh, and you were doing something that hadn't done, been done before and you were doing something that you thought was right. Uh, and it was a very exhilarating, demanding, um, at times frightening situation to be in. I spent four and a half years in the army, Danny. The prime uh, of your life. And I, I would not, I'm not a normal army chap. I would not have been in the army had it not been for the war. I regret not a single second of that time because I, I met people that I would never have normally met. We, we all live in our little social brackets, don't we? we? We talk to and we know and we consult with like-minded people. We don't talk to people who are, quotes, above us in our social station sure. or, quotes, below us. Yeah. When I went into the 30th primary training wing at Bovington, I was in a barrack room with 30 beds in it, and the bed on my right was occupied by a lord, somebody who had better be nameless, who was the thickest bloke I've ever met in my life, and the bed on my left was, was, met by, was occupied by a chap called Ted Nicklin, who was a war- welder from Walsall. So if you, you've got the three sort of social brackets, uh, blue-collar, middle-class, and upper-class in three beds alongside, and I would never normally have met either Lord Sansa or Ted Nicklin, and my life is the richer for it. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Yeah, this, is, this is My Sporting Life on TalkSport with me, Danny Kelly. Tonight's guest is the former motorsport broadcasting great Murray Walker. Murray, we've uh, heard with deep fascination, and I have to say still somewhat gratitude, uh, your adventures uh, during the Second World War. Um, you left the army in the uh, uh, some uh, well, 18 months after the war. What were your options after leaving the army? What did you imagine you were going to do? Well, uh, I, I was a captain in the army. I'd been in it for four and a half years. I had to, I had to get a job. And I got a scholarship, a business scholarship with Dunlop. So the war finishes. I think back. I think oh, I had a business scholarship with Dunlop. I go to them. I went to them. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, uh, advertising. Because advertising was something that I I had liked when I was doing this course. <clears throat> they said, we haven't got a job in the advertising department. How would you like to be a laboratory technician? Oh, great, I said. I wanted a job. I said, oh, great. I'd love to be a laboratory technician. <coughs> So to cut another long story short, I eventually joined the company in the advertising department uh, and uh, I've worked with Dunlop for eight years. Uh, Too long, I should have moved on, but I did move on subsequently. So you're in business and eventually move into the advertising business. How does that allow you, how do you become a commentator? I kind of know the answer, but it's a fascinating story. Danny, in this life, as you well know, you, you always find time for the things you want to do. The things you, it's difficult to find time for are the things you do not want to do. Uh, my father became a commentator, the BBC's commentator on motorcycle racing. Yeah. And as I have told you, I thought the, my father was the bee's knees and I wanted to be like him. I took up motorcycle racing when I came out of the army uh, and I was all right. I was good club standard, but I was never going to be great shakes. Uh, and so 
I thought I'd like to do something else as a hobby. Uh, my father was the BBC commentator to cut another long on story. On the radio, I presume. On the radio. radio. Yeah. There wasn't any television no. in those days. Uh, I got an audition with the BBC, and uh, my first broadcast ever was, major broadcast, was the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1949, which, as all enthusiasts know, was won by Baron Tullo de Graffenried from Switzerland in a Maserati. Uh, and then Formula One started in 1950, and uh, I actually worked with my father from 1949 until 1962, and we were the only father and son commentary team, as far as I know, that British radio has ever had. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm struggling to recall one as well. So for 13 years, you and your father did the motorsport on BBC Radio. What was it like? Absolutely brilliant, because uh, I, 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 I was like a pig in clover. I, I was doing what I wanted to do. I em emphasise that it was a hobby because my bread and butter came from my advertising yes. job. And I was starting to do fairly well in that, and that was where my future lay. But uh, I was now travelling Britain and, to some extent, Europe, covering motorcycle racing in particular, uh, until Jonathan Martin of the BBC put me onto Formula One in 1978. Uh, and working with my dad was marvellous because we got on very well together. Our voices were the same. Our attitudes were the same. Uh, we never had to do a formal handover if we were talking during a race because I knew instinctively when he was going to stop talking and vice versa. Uh, and when he died, it was a very sad day for me, but I, I tried to step into some very large shoes and follow him. How good a commentator was he? He was absolutely brilliant. If people are kind enough to think that I do a reasonable job. They should have heard my father because he was sensational. Really? Yes. He, he was. I was going to say he was like me. I was like him. Uh, we both have very harsh, aggressive, fast-moving voices, which suits a harsh, aggressive, fast-moving sport. Well, you're, you're talking over the yeah. noise of engines yes, for a yeah, start, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. 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 Jeremy Clarkson, I did a show with him once, and he said, is there anything you haven't, haven't done? And I said... I've always wanted to talk about snooker. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you can think of anybody less suitable than me to do snooker, I can't. And uh, he, he gave well, I guess on the spectrum of commentating voices, there's you down one end and Ted Lowe down the other. That's isn't right. It? I that's, think right. that's about right. Yeah. Um, your father, as you say, uh, the partnership is ended not by um, you know uh, commercial deals or anything else. Your dad dies, as you say. The smoking got to him. Tell us about uh, your feelings when that happened, because, uh, as you say, you were still a relatively young man. Uh, well, when you when you lose one of your parents, you're distraught, aren't you? Mm -hmm. uh, and I was. Um, uh, but it's, it's an unusual situation that you, you're both, not only is your parent, but he's your co-worker. He's, he, he's the centre of the things you do for a hobby. It's, it's, it's rather more. Yes, it, it was a, a very, very large slice missing from my life, but... Uh, I, I was leading a, an extremely active life with, with the job from Monday to Friday and the hobby from um, Saturday to Sunday, and I'm fortunate that I got a tolerant and understanding wife who puts up with my w weird way of Let, Let's of hear her name. Yeah. Let's Elizabeth, give her credit. Yeah. Elizabeth, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and yes, it was, a, it was a major blow, but um, you just you carry on, don't you? you? You carried on doing the commentator commentary by yourself then, yeah? Yes, uh, um, from when he died, I, 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 I gradually expanded in the BBC. I started off on motorcycles doing motorcycle road racing and scrambles, which were tremendously popular on television. I got mm. onto television by now. Uh, and ITV and BBC both did it. And Scrambling, I, yeah, of course. Jeff Banks on Husqvarna and uh, all that. Dave, <laughs> Dave, Dave Bickers, Dave Banks, Amazing. Jeff Smith, yes, Arthur yeah. Lampkin. Great, great, great names from the past. Uh, and um, there was a very bad winter in 1962 as a result of which all, virtually all sports stopped, except, paradoxically, motorcycle scrambling, which ITV had been doing with great success for years, and I'd been doing it weekend after weekend, storming up to Yorkshire and doing five-hour shows. Uh, the BBC did one, and it was enormously successful, uh, and that was when the head of sport at the BBC said to me, we're going to be doing motorcycle scrambling, Murray. You're going to be doing the commentary. Not would you like to or can <laughs> you. Would You're going to be doing the commentary. And he said, I'm perfectly aware of the fact that you do it for ITV. And if you should continue, 
there will be no problem and we will continue to use you for as long as it takes to find a replacement. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew then that my ITV motorcycle career was over. We suddenly find you're, you're on television doing Formula One. How did that come about? Well, I was the BBC's motorcycle man and I also did touring cars and carts and truck racing and the British Touring Car Championship, but not Formula One because a giant of broadcasting by the name of Raymond Baxter did Formula One or what little the BBC did in those days. And it's hard to remember just how little that was. Yes, very, 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 very few races and not very much of them either. Anyway, in 1976, James Hunt becomes world champion. And all of a sudden, the British public became really, really, really aware of Formula One, but particularly because of James's personality sure. and charisma. And we'll talk about your work with James. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And 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 uh, the BBC start, decided, in the form of Jonathan Martin, who was the head of sport, that they were now going to do all the Formula One races starting in 1978. Uh, so um, I get a call from Jonathan Martin one day, come and have lunch with me. I came and had lunch, lunch with him. And he said, we're going to be doing Formula One uh, in future, and we want you to do it. Can you do it? Can a, can a, can a fish swim? You know? yeah. uh, uh, I grasped the opportunity with both hands. And in those days, Danny, when we started, uh, I would go out on the Thursday to the event. Let's say it's the Spanish Grand Prix. I would go to the Spanish Grand Prix on the Thursday, watch the practice on Friday, watch the qualifying on th- or Saturday, come back to England on Saturday evening, watch the race on Eurosport at the BBC Television Centre. The, the one-and-a-half-hour race would then be edited down to half an hour because it was a half-hour programme, and I would put the commentary on retrospectively, and you had to be prepared to leap from lap 5 to lap 12 and from lap 12 to lap 34 and all that sort of thing. I mean, and let me just ask you... Uh Radio, as I know, and anyone who's listening to me knows, you 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 get to talk a lot, and you have to fill up a lot of a lot of uh, dead air. Otherwise, how much did you have to compromise or change your commentary style for TV? Well, I don't know. That's probably my downfall in a way, because I I, I cut my teeth on and did radio for so many years, and as you know, you, if you're watching a Formula One race on radio, you can't say. Well, nothing much happening at the moment. I'll give you a shout when it does no, no, and, yeah. and stop talking. You've got to keep talking all the time. So when I went to television, I was Walker the Talker. And I had a producer called Jim Reside. And I was, used to be Jim Reside's despair because I would be on the balls of my feet, adrenaline pouring out of me by the bucket full, pouring out the words. And Jim would say to me through the earphones, pause, Murray, pause. And I would pause for about 10 seconds and then my enthusiasm would take over and I was off again. And what about some of the trademarks? I mean, go, 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 etc. Um, were you aware that you were making no, um, no, people catchphrases? No, but, but, but probably one of the things I'm most remembered for is when Damon Hill won the World Championship in 1996. And I have a lot of background with Damon and an enormous amount of admiration and respect for him. And when he won the World Championship, after all his years of effort, including having had his double world champion father, Graham Hill, die in tragic circumstances, Graham won the, Damon won the championship. And as he crossed the line at Suzuka in Japan, I said, Damon Hill is world champion, and, and I've got to stop now because I've got a lump in my throat. And I had got a lump in my throat. But people accused me of thinking of clever things to say, and writing them on the commentary box ball and looking for an opportunity to say them. But that's not the case. If, if you're as involved with it, as passionately enthusiastic about it as I am, uh, and as lucky to know all the people as, as I did, uh, you're just bursting to tell every. I wanted people uh, to realise how much the sport mattered to me and to make it matter as much to them. Uh, I was in show business, and it's it's not just a case of of informing; it's a case of entertaining as well. Absolutely. The other part of the whole equation was that theme music for the Chain by Fleetwood Mac. Boom, who chose boom, that? Boom, boom, um, and and boom, boom, boom. I'll, I'll tell you who chose it. Ask anybody in the BBC at the sports department of the time who thought of the Chain from Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, and whoever it was you were talking to would look modestly and say, "Well." You know. yeah. <laughs> but it was actually a chap called Bob Abrams who uh, 
was was told to find some music, and he did, and it's it's iconic. Well, I mean, because what, what's interesting about it, if I remember the song, the chain is actually two songs stitched together, and that boom is the middle of the song. It's not even the start of the song, is it? There's a there's a long kind of ballady piece, um, and then because uh, they're so lazy rock stars, they can't be able to think of two titles. They just tacked the second song, which goes boom on the end of it. Um, did you ever meet Fleetwood Mac? Did they become well, part of it? The BBC had been doing the Grand Prix programme for 10 years, which coincided with Fleetwood Mac being in England for the first time for 10 years. Despite being the biggest band on the planet at the time. At Wembley, that. at Wembley. Yeah. And the producer said to me, I want you to go down to uh, Wembley, Murray, and do the opening record, the opening 30 seconds of the show with Fleetwood Mac in the background. I've spoken to the manager, so I go down there, I see the manager, and he says they're coming out of that door at this time, they're going across there and up the steps and onto the stage. Do it then. And it'll take about 30 seconds. And I thought, if I don't get it right this 30 seconds, I'm dead because they've gone. Uh, and I was very worried about it. Is it that it. serious if you don't get 30 seconds of a Fleetwood Mac? Well, I was worried. And while I was standing there, a bloke comes walking towards me in a stovepipe hat and a decorated waistcoat and short trousers. And he said, you're Murray Walker, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, oh, I listen to your show whenever you can. And I thought, oh, yeah. So I said, oh, yes, thank you very much. He said, why are you here? And I told him. And he said, uh, well, maybe I can help you. And I said, how's that? And he said, I'm Mick Fleetwood. Now, I didn't even know there was a Fle- Mick Fleetwood. Oh, there is a Mick Fleetwood. And if he's wearing a stovepipe hat, given that he's six foot seven, he must have been about nine foot tall <laughs> yes, as well. big bloke. <laughs> Did it work out all right with Fleetwood, mate? It wor- he said, what do you want? And I told him, and he got them out five <laughs> minutes early. Yeah. That's all I wanted because I got a buffer. And actually, it went all right first time. But if he hadn't done it, it wouldn't have. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Hi there, I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome to part two of my sporting life with Murray Walker here on Talk Sport. Now, Murray is one of the greats from the history of British sports broadcasting. Murray, we heard in the latter part of the first half of the show about uh, your time and get, how you got into the BBC and the start of the televi- televi- televising of the Formula One. I guess the relationship which sold it to the nation made you a household name and led to audiences of tens of millions that nobody would believe now for any sporting event was your relationship with James Hunt. Um, do you know James well before you ended up sharing a commentary box with him? Mm, how, lo- how long have you got, Danny? Not so long, <laughs> I'm afraid. But uh, Well, I had 13 years with James. Yeah. Uh, 13 years, 16 times a year, four days each time. Wow. And if you multiply 13 by 16 by 4, you get a very big number. It's a lifetime, isn't it? Uh, I <clears throat> was extremely put out when James was appointed to the commentary team in 1980 
because I had been doing Formula One alone for the BBC for two years, and uh, I thought I'd been doing it all right. And when Jonathan Martin, the head of sport, said to me, there's going to be two commentators in future, Murray, you're going to be one and James Hunt is going to be the other, my immediate reaction was, James Hunt? What does he know about broadcasting? He's a racing driver, and anyway, I don't like him. Uh, Why didn't you like him? James, well, uh, uh, I'll give you the shortest possible answer I can. Uh, James was, uh, could be rude, arrogant, overbearing. He drank too much. He smoked too much. He was on drugs. Um, All the time, Danny, there was an extremely nice, decent, honest, friendly, enormously bright chap living inside him. Um, But uh, success probably had gone to his head. He was a very emotional chap. I was old enough to be his father. We were um, totally different to each other temperamentally. I liked things that he didn't and vice versa. Uh, And somehow this peculiar mixture seemed to work well in the commentary box. Um, How long did it take for you to develop uh, something that worked? Um, Because as you say, it, it, it was unpromising ground, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I can't put a time spell on it, but uh, uh, probably a couple of years, I should think. Uh, I mean, I used to stand stand up to do my commentaries always. I was bouncing around on the balls of my feet because I got excited and I was pointing at the screen and shouting in the microphone. James used to sit alongside me. uh, And and we shared one microphone, Danny. Now, if if you can imagine two people all with fairly well-developed egos being in a commentary box to talk to the public about the sport they loved with only one microphone to do so and you always knew you didn't think you knew that anything that you wanted to say was much more important relevant entertaining and instructive than what the other (laughs) bloke wanted to say and vice versa so neither of us would be particularly anxious to give the microphone to the other one but I always knew that if Uh, There's no such thing as a dull Formula One race as far as I'm concerned. There can be processional ones. Yes. But there is always something exciting to talk about if you know where to look. Yeah. Uh, And if we had a processional race, I always knew that I only had to say something complimentary about Ricardo Patrese, who James loathed and despised. (laughs) And James would gesture for the microphone and I would give it to him. Uh, and then he would pour vitriol and bile onto him. But over over the years, we learned to accommodate each other. Uh, and I wouldn't have said the less pleasant things about James that I've just said had it not been for the fact that we fairly rapidly grew together, respected each other, worked well together. Uh, and it was a very, very sad day when at the age of 45, Incredible. 45, James, he, he, uh, Danny died. As you say, in, that was June in 1993. Um, do you remember your last meetings with him? Or? I remember it vividly. We did the Canadian Grand Prix together, and this was at a time when, unknown to the general public, we weren't actually at a lot of the races, the long-haul ones, because the BBC didn't want to pay the money to send us to the other side of the world. Uh, and we would do it from a studio in Shepherd's Bush. And James was on very hard times after he'd retired. Uh, He'd he'd had several businesses which had gone belly up. He'd taken a colossal bashing. He was a partner at Lloyd's, and that that had taken him to the cleaners. He was going through a very expensive and messy divorce. Um, And he he didn't have a car. Well, he had an Austin A30 van on cross-ply tires, which he used very seldom. He cycled everywhere. And he cycled from Wimbledon to Shepherd's Bush, We did the commentary together. He went home. The next morning, my wife phoned me and she said, brace yourself, I've got some bad news. And my mother was 96 at the time. And I said, oh God, is it mother? And she said, no, James has died. And I said, James who? And she said, James Hunt. And I said, I was with him last night. As though being with him last night meant he couldn't possibly be dead now, which is quite ludicrous. and um, he, 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 just, he just had a massive heart attack at 45. James had been burning the candle at both ends and in the middle for years, and I think it just caught up with him. Do you understand the affection in which your, your, your relationship with him, uh, on, on-screen relationship, uh, is held now? Well, it's, it's very nice if that's the case, and um, I, I look back on those years as being mint years in my career. 
Okay, well, listen, um, thank you for telling us about, about uh, James Hunt and the work you did together. Among the other per- people who have benefited um, from uh, working with you, and I'd like to say joining us online now from the other side of the world, such as the world of Grand Prix racing, former racing driver and still commentator, very much commentator these days, Martin Brundle. Hello, Martin. Hi, how are you doing? Hello, Murray. Hello, no, Martin. Very, very good to talk to you. Um, Martin, um, we'll talk about your experiences with... Uh, uh, Murray Walker in just a second. First of all, could you could you try and outline to us from inside the world of Grand Prix racing the contribution that Murray has made to the sport? Well, it's immense because he became the voice of Formula One around the world, and not least because he commentated to English-speaking countries as well as the UK. And he became an authority, and Murray was smart enough to realise that he was there to entertain the their fans and as well as inform them and one of the best pieces of advice that he's ever given me was just remember you're there to entertain and and he's absolutely right and so i think he achieved so much um in that in that role and uh people just love to hear what he got to say and and more importantly how he was going to say it um, and what about yourself working with uh, uh, Murray Martin? Um, I'd ask you the obvious question. What did you learn other than what you just said? Well, I sort of went in the commentary box kicking and screaming a little bit because I, I wanted to be driving a Grand Prix car. And when their cars rolled out in Melbourne for the first race in 1997, I was taking quite a lot of pain. But that soon dissolved because, uh, and I've said many times, and I'll say it again, you know, having Murray Walker showing you how to commentate on motor racing is like having Pele teaching how to kick a football and and I learned so much and I used to sometimes just stand back and admire him his his energy his enthusiasm his knowledge uh, I remember the first link we did together for a feature it was in a Melbourne shopping center there was some some reason there was a statue of Marilyn Monroe with a fan blowing her dress up and uh-huh. well it was all downhill from there really <laughs> Um, the, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the, the television coverage has changed so much over the years, Martin. Um, do you think do you think the sport would have been different, uh, certainly all the way it was looked at in this country, if it hadn't been for the way that Murray Walker presented it? Well, I think there is no doubt that Murray made a, a very big impact, and he bridged the decades in an industry that's so fast-moving, and that's Formula One and media that I'm talking about, and television in particular. So, uh, you know, there can be no doubting the impact that, that Murray made, made through that phase. I was going to ask you, Murray, um, you've just been describing the difficulty of working with James Hunt. You don't, you don't want to uh, squeal up Martin well, Brundle at all, do you? I, 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 don't, I don't want this to be a mutual admiration society. Well, but, why not but, for a few but, minutes? But, why not? But, but there were times that I didn't get on too well with, with James Hunt and it was a bit of a struggle for the reasons I've given you. There was never, ever a time when I didn't get on with Martin and I'm a, I'm a natural-born gas bag, and it must be very difficult, must have been very difficult, for Martin, who was bursting with something relevant to say as an expert when I was blathering on and he was trying to get in. And, and I've always admired and respected him for his patience and tolerance and understanding. But at least, Martin, you weren't sharing a microphone. At least I don't think so. By that stage, you had two microphones, did you? Yeah, we did, actually. Two lip mics and and a sort of a system, and and I would rest my hand on Murray's shoulder because we both stood up. I thought if it's good enough for Murray Walker, then it's much more than good enough for me. So we stood up and commentated because your diaphragm's more open and you can um, you can express yourself better. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, the system was I'd put my hand on his shoulder if I felt there was something worth saying, but it didn't always get a response because Murray would be on the rev limiter, flat out with with a viewpoint. So sometimes I had to get my fingernails underneath his tendons to really, really get his attention. But I did once get his his head uh, headset cable caught around my foot. And as I went to shift position, it was in Monza, I was I looked around, I was dragging Murray Walker headfirst towards me. And uh, whatever looks could kill, I wouldn't be on this phone now. <laughs> On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, My Sporting Life on Talk Sport. Yeah, you're listening to Talk Sport. We're on tonight's edition of My Sporting Life. We're joined by the motorsport commentator, Murray Walker. Murray, in the mid-90s, uh, 96, 97, um, you know, one can never see these things coming. Suddenly, 
the BBC lost the rights to cover Formula One. They lost it to ITV in a very famous and bitter struggle. Um, did you think your days as a, as a TV commentator were coming to an end then? Because you're so associated with the BBC. I, I did indeed, uh, Danny, because 1996, I was just trying to work, work out how old I was. What's uh, 96 minus 23? Uh, I was 70-something years old. And I thought, well, I've had, a, I've had a jolly good innings. I really haven't got anything to complain about. I'm sorry I can't go on. Uh, it all happened very suddenly because I was doing a, a talk at a lunch at Bewley at the National Motor Museum and I got in the car to go home, switched on the radio, and there was a voice telling me that the BBC had lost its coverage. That's how you found that out. That was the first time I heard of it. And the first time Jonathan Martin, who was the head of sport at BBC, knew about it, having be, having been in competition with ITV for it, but assuming that the, as the BBC had had it for so long they were going to continue, was when Bernie Ecclestone phoned him and said, uh, hello, Jonathan, I phoned you to tell you that it's going to ITV and we're making the announcement in half an hour's time. And Jonathan picked himself up off the floor and said, gosh, Bernie, you might have given us a chance to make a competitive cut. And Bernie said, unless you've been cheating me all these years, there's no way you can pay what they're paying, so you're out. Uh, and I thought I was out too, but I'm glad to say that the next morning a chap called Mike Southgate in ITV phoned me and he said, can we come and talk to you? And they said, uh, I said, uh, you certainly can. And uh, they came down to my home and said, we want you to carry on. And uh, I regarded myself as very lucky because it's unusual for somebody to go from as big a broadcaster as the BBC to one as big as ITV. Did they offer you more money? I did. A lot more, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, they're the commercial broadcaster. uh, I mean, I think, am I right in thinking there was a kind of period where you had to keep... There was a great deal of speculation about who would... Because it was a year. I had a whole year, Danny, when (laughs) I knew, uh, but I I couldn't tell anybody. And the media people, uh, especially a chap called Andrew Benson, who worked uh, for Autosport and now works for the BBC, were coming up to me and saying, what's happening? I'd say... Oh, I don't know, but I've done. You know, I've had a good innings, and uh, I'll, there'll be something. I can remember the Daily Mirror running a campaign to yeah. get you to get you installed in a job you already what, had. What, say, so, uh, yes. say, save our Murray. Save our, save our Murray. Um, <laughs> yeah, and they came down to my house and took pictures of me on my garden tractor with Ferrari transfers on it and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Yeah, but you already knew that you had the gig. I did know. Yes, yeah, yes. Very, very tricky. <laughs> well, listen. Uh, I guess the, the the power behind this whole deal that took her Formula One uh, from BBC to ITV and indeed took you with it um, is Brian Barwick, of course, then the head of uh, ITV Sport and a legendary figure in sports broadcasting in this country. And I'm delighted to say that he joins us on the line now. Good evening, Brian. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Very, very, very good indeed. I mean, first of all, let's just talk about the. I mean, what what it took for you to to wrestle um, Formula One, which had been established for so long as a, as an absolute flagship of BBC Sport. Where did you get the idea from, and how difficult it was to wrestle both the, the sport and Murray uh, onto ITV? Well, let me tell you this: as Murray will know, we were not in acquaintances really in BBC Sport because Murray was absolutely synonymous with motorsport. I was really synonymous with football and probably Olympics and, and things like that, Bro- a broader spectrum, but Murray was very much focused on his Formula One. But when I went across to ITV to run ITV Sport, I was absolutely determined to play a part, not just in all the football output they had, but also Formula One, because it was a huge contract for mm-hmm. ITV. And the other thing that I tried to do, and Murray touched on it, is to just try and give it some generality of message rather than specific autosport reader, autosport reader, autosport reader. I'm within everybody to get involved in and everybody enjoy it. And part of my role was if I didn't understand something, Mm. when the guys came back from the races, I'd ask ask them to make their commentary broader and, and more accessible. I mean, and, and how important, um, looking at it both from the BBC for that year and latterly uh, as his boss, how important was it that Murray went with the coverage of Formula One? Well, it's important to Murray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he just described his fantastic new pay packet, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, listen, it was, uh, it was a masterstroke for ITV because the one thing ITV had to do was to have some... Buy, in truth, buy some credibility. 
it's one thing buying the event, you've got to buy the credibility that goes with it. And Murray was gold standard credibility. And, and was while I was there. We had a great time working together on it. Well, I used to very much respect and admire the fact, Brian, that if I was doing something wrong by your standards, you didn't shrink from telling me. I would come into the office and you would give me chapter and verse in the nicest possible, but in your very straightforward way about how you felt it ought to be done, and I tried to take it on board. Well, the, 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 my favourite story about trying to do that, and you're right, Murray, well, I cared about it. You know, I could have let commentary after commentary go yeah. across all the sports, but I just wasn't chasing Murray round the block, Danny. I was chasing them all round the block yeah. because, you know, my, my sense of it was I had a responsibility to, to set standards. Yeah. Now, how do you set standards with a guy who's been doing it 35, 40 years? Well, you take an interest. And one of the things I thought Murray was struggling with, amongst all the things he was doing fantastically, was getting in and out of breaks, because it was new to Murray. And I had him in because he talked, he, he, he was so excited with what he was seeing, he was transferring that excitement to the viewer. But in, then as, as we went to a break, you could feel a whole nation yeah. bearing its teeth at ITV. So I had him in the office one day, and I, drew, I, I got a blank piece of paper, and I drew a line upwards and a line downwards. Right. And I said, that's what I want you to do, Murray. He said, what's that? I said, this is your current style of commentary into a, into a commercial break. I drew the line upwards. This is what I want you to do. And I drew the line downwards. And I said, I want you to pin that up in your commentary box. And I went in the commentary box about three races later, and it was pinned up. So, <laughs> so obviously he was paying some attention, Brian. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He obviously knew I was in town. But, um, but no, listen, Murray has been a complete and utter gold standard broadcaster. There's very few commentators who burn through the sport and become totally synonymous with it. Uh, and and Murray's, you know, Murray's in that very select select group. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's Brian Barwick, who was, of course, the head of ITV Sport during your time there, most of your time there. Murray, we, we need to talk, come straight to the end of your time as a commentator. Why? I mean, your last for, uh, Formula One commentary was at Indianapolis in the United States. I mean, actually, I remember just a few a couple of weeks after 9-11. Why did you, why did you decide enough was enough? Uh, I stopped. Uh, I was 77, I think, at the t 78 at the time, uh, Danny. I had been doing it a very long time. I got to the point where the travel was really getting very demanding indeed. Arduous, There's yeah. 20 events now, and 12 of them are long haul, and a lot of them are back-to-back. -back. And if you're a young man, it's demanding physically. And if you're an old man, and I was, it's extremely demanding. And it's stressful phys uh, mentally as well. Any regrets about, about your decision to retire? I mean, you're, oh, as yeah. you say, you're not a child. E enormous regrets. Do I miss it? Of course I miss it. Uh, I, I had years and years of indulging in my passion, travelling the world, working with like-minded, high-stepping, ambitious, youthful, demanding people, staying in fabulous hotels, eating in wonderful restaurants. Uh, it's a wonderful existence, but you get to a point eventually where you think, I, I really am, ought, to be, ought not to be doing this. Uh, I regret not being able to do it, but I love having been able to do it. In all that you've seen and learned and know about the sport across nearly 90 years, who's the greatest driver you think that's ever sat behind the wheel of a car? Well, I have to preface my answer, Danny, by saying that this is a subject, unprovable opinion. Absolutely. But in my subjective, unprovable opinion, the greatest driver who's ever lived is a chap that an awful lot of the audience will never have heard mm -hmm. of. It's a bloke called Tarzio Nuvolari, who lived before the war and was a gigantically charismatic, multi-talented Italian who had a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant career. But since uh, most people will never have heard of him, I'll say the greatest driver who's ever lived in the history of Formula One, in yeah, my opinion. The modern age, we'll call it, yeah. Yeah, is Juan Manuel Fangio, who was five times world champion in the 1950s. And uh, he did something that Michael Schumacher, who's won seven world championships, never did. Fangio won the world championship for four different constructors. He won it for Mercedes-Benz, for Ferrari, for Maserati and for Alfa Romeo. And that is a unique achievement. And he was a charming, courteous, 
uh, Argentinian gentleman that I had the very great pleasure of interviewing for a whole morning on one occasion. We've heard about your uh, experiences in the war, about your very successful business career in advertising, and about, of course, the things that's made you a legend, the commentary. What in your life, Murray, what, what have you been most proud of? Getting the OBE from the Queen. I'm immensely proud of the fact that I have been honoured by my country. I'm intensely patriotic. I'm British, I'm English, and I'm very, very proud of it. I think we're a wonderful nation, and I think we do a fantastic job in just about every area. Look at what we've done in the Olympics this this year. Amazing. Uh, and to receive that reward from a woman I admire and respect so much and to whom we owe so much was a source of intense pride to me. And if I might ask you uh, finally, um, how would you like to be remembered from all of the things that you've done and the way people regard you? How would you like to be remembered? Uh, I suppose, Danny, as someone who gave uh, a lot of people pleasure about something which he enjoyed so much. Well, you uh, you gave people a, 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 an, an eye into a world which they would have had no knowledge at all. And as I say, if uh, if I might be so bold, to me, the fact that you made what I still think is a highly commercial but minority sport, just about the most popular sport on British television, uh, gives you... Uh, some measure of what it is you've achieved. I also want to thank you so, so much because that's it for this edition of My Sporting Life. And uh, indeed, when I started this series uh, over a year and 70 shows ago, um, one of the things I said to the young producers was, let's see if we can get Murray Walker to do it. And now we've done that, and I'm so glad that we did. Our thanks to all the guests as well for being so informative and fun as well. Um, and to you for listening. I'll be back next Sunday at 10pm, and once again I'll be joined by another personality from the sporting world. Till then... Thanks again with all my heart to Murray Walker. God bless you all. And good night. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.